Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I mean, this was probably one of the, the best weeks. So I thought it was really interesting, just with the whole the whole emphasis on science, thinking in terms of apologetic, in that whole spectrum of ideas. Chris Berrigar is an Anglican priest in Montreal. He's got a PhD in science. He basically argues for freedom in terms of God creating absolute free will for humans. The scientific part of it is that free will is exhibited throughout all of evolution as well. So the pathway, you know that there's three major pathways to us. We went through the pan, the chimpanzee, but we could have come through the the birds, the corvids, the very smart crows, or we could have come through octopus, who are also very intelligent. With the process of evolution, that happened to be the way we went. But he, he argues that God just throws it out there and sees what happens. It's, it's very much random. And, and there's a great example where one of the main things he talks about is massively large numbers. So there's a, there's a particular oysters that lay 220 million eggs, and only three or four actually live to reproduce. So it's like the possibility of, you know, of things going extinct, but also the possibility of things continuing. So it's very much the idea of randomness is, is, is in terms of the whole science. It really opens up, for me, a, a theological question because it allows us to live in the world and recognize that this cosmos was created a certain way. And, you know, 90% of the apologetics issues that we face many times, I'm on the web talking to people, is always over and over and over is the question of evil. And their whole idea is that if God is good or if there's this powerful God, nobody would have a single problem in the, at all. We, you know what I mean? And, and then they, all they do is pick on Christians who run around saying God saved this and God did that. Like after the 350,000 killed in the tsunami in Thailand and there was a small group of people and their boat normally doesn't start and they started it up and jumped in it and off they went. And yay, God was with those 17 people. You know, meanwhile, the other 350,000 he didn't see fit to save. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Right, right. Again, just to make it personal, back in June when I got this cancer diagnosis, because of my theology, there was never for a second like, oh, God, what? You know, what was God thinking? What was God doing? Where is God? What didn't even cross my mind because that's not the world I live in. Um, and yet, you know, the world I do live in is, yes, I believe God is pro- God was with me through the whole thing. I believe that's the promise. That that's, that's the one promise I'll hang my hat on, but everything else is up for grabs. How, how are you doing with it? Yeah, not too bad. I got, I got, I got some new prescriptions yesterday. <laughs> so if I seem really excited, it's because of my drugs. Oh, yeah. Keep, I would say keep on those drugs, whatever. Yeah. I think what your, your description of this guy fits the book you sent, suggesting that a Girardian understanding, proposing a kind of evolutionary development with a Girardian understanding at the beginning. I wonder if the idea of the scapegoat of a necessary violence, it does seem like in that instance, the Girardian theory, there's a sense in which I agree that Girardian theory captures an understanding of primitive humans and, and of course, humans today. The thing I would object to or question, uh, I'm still mulling it over, and that is the necessity of this channeling of violence that you get 
in Girardian theory. It seems like a, a very cruel use. In other words, it would seem like in that instance that God is in some way deployed a kind of evil system so as to arrive at a good system. I like the, the, the thing that you describe before that, and I think that maybe the two guys you're describing don't agree. I think that we have to account in a positive fashion for the role of human will. In other words, that obviously in a reformed understanding, you can just wipe all that out. In tension with my own understanding, but I'm happy to live in that tension, in that I've never thought that sin or the deception that is connected with sin is a debilitating deception. That is, that human agency is still playing a role in that, which would explain that there are different depths of deception. Now, what that does for you, it sets up the possibility, especially in this week of talking about the role of science and reason and all that, it sets up the possibility that we have access to the truth just by the fact that we're human and created in God's image. And the obstruction to that, I think, is a human obstruction. My fear is that in a picturing of even biblical revelation simply as an evolutionary development, that in some way you're positing a necessary unfolding of this history as if the evil or the stuntedness or the deception were a necessary predecessor to the unfolding of the truth. Are you sort of saying then, and again, I'm, I like Gerard and I've learned lots from him, but yeah, are you saying that you think that for Gerard, evil isn't inevitable? That, it, that it's necessary? Because I don't think he argue God's using it. Right, or I guess yeah. he does argue God uses it, but... I'm afraid there are Girardians who think that he is omnicompetent, that you can take Girard's theory, and that's the explanation for everything. And so they just want to plug everything into Rene Girard. I like Girard. I like what he's doing. I don't think that he himself thought of his theory as omnicompetent. I think it is an insight it is an explanation. You know, even Gerard is working with Freud, and what Gerard is doing is taking Freud's civilization and its discontents and really unfolding something from that. He's really dealing with the Oedipus complex, but reworking a Freudian Oedipus complex. I don't think that Gerard himself would object to the idea of positing something prior or after and in, in some way seeing his theory as being set in a larger theory. And that's the way that I've used Gerard. I've always thought that Gerard fit into a picture of sin as a deception, and here is a form this deception has taken in civilization, in organized religion. And I agree. I think, like you say, some people, they, they, they get one particular insight. And like you say, it becomes the, uh, the launching pad for everything else. And yeah, I, I, I totally get that. But, but I think the question that does come up, and again, it's tied to the science question, the whole evolution thing, is the idea of recognizing this, this problem of violence and how it's, how when you read the Bible with that, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother lens to read the Bible. And we have been so indoctrinated in this idea of creation, fall, Israel, 
church, redemption, you know, and so driven into our mind that God started the sacrificial system. Therefore, Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. And, you know, just to break free from that is, is it just, it just requires continual emotional energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I'm commenting about that often on Facebook posts where somebody just brought something up about, well, then why did Jesus need to die? And I just, you know, there's the Girardian thing. I said, well, Jesus didn't, we needed him to die. God didn't mm-hmm. need him to die. No, no, no. The cross was necessary. Otherwise, God couldn't forgive us. And I go, I forgive people all the time without asking for their firstborn son. Am I better yeah. than God? <laughs> I admire you, all of you guys that I, I have limited energy. I'm willing to get, engage the conversation, but to just continually engage in the same conversation, which one could do, you know, you could just keep saying the same thing. And maybe I think there needs to be people out there doing that. But the idea of a violent religion, a violent God, penal substitution, I think is just a dead letter for me, whether people are there. And so once you get that, and this is actually what I like, Sondra Egger is doing, she's building on what many other people have already done. I have talked about two goats in the temple, and she is saying something similar, that we've misunderstood the entire sacrificial system. Gerard never was, he never got here. Now, maybe you'll correct me, Tim. But my understanding is that Michael Harden also is, he's reading the Old Testament sacrifices the way that Gerard did, that is, seeing them as just more of the same. But there has been a great deal of revisionist, I don't know if revisionist, to me, at least among Christians, it's revisionist. Whether it is among Jews, I think, is questionable. That is that the two-goat theology is really about a cleansing of the temple from violence and death, that even the sacrificial system is not a picture of an interchange between God and humans, but it's an inner a picture. I, I did a bit of this with the Helen Keller stuff, and that is that what is being pictured is the imminent trinity and the circulation of self-sacrifice and reception. That is that what we have, and this is Sonderegger's argument, is that in the Old Testament, we have a full revelation of the Trinity and even the imminent Trinity. I'm open to that. And if you're going to say that, then also what you have is an access to, in other words, I believe we have access to God. And the thing that would obstruct that access is human. It is a human obstruction, whether it's violence, violence in a big sense. But is that a necessity? I don't think it is. And so that was my point with Helen Keller. Here's somebody who pictures language acquisition as revelation. I don't think we need to equate those two things, but is language acquisition on a continuum with revelation? Is our understanding of the world on a continuum with our understanding of God? Now, that's a way of saying this. I think that normally it's not, but why isn't it? Because of human sinfulness. But I think apart from that sinfulness, what Jesus is doing is a completion of creation. He's also overcoming and defeating sin in the process, but that's not the full explanation. What he's also doing is completing creation, which means that there's a lot more positive happening than simply the the negative. Just on that one point, Paul, that's where I, where you were one week, you were talking about, we tell the story. We have a two-act story, and Tom Wright has his five acts or whatever, and 
two acts. We have creation, we have resurrection. That's it. Creation, new creation. That's the way the story unfolds, and that's how it should be told. But you got to start it from the new creation and work backwards. So that's a whole other story. And that would be my contention, is that Wright he seems committed to a, a, I don't know if salvation history is fair to him, but that's really what he's advocating, is that things have to unfold in this sequence, and we have to understand it sequentially. And what I say is, no, we don't understand it sequentially. We don't come to Christ through creation. We come to creation through Christ. Or Israel, you know, we could add several things to that. That's, that's excellent. You're just, you're just feeding the echo chamber. <laughs> I think that a lot of people are committed, by being committed to a kind of sequential salvation history, then Christ just becomes an additive, epistemologically in every other way. And I think that's that time where Jason came on and talked about, you know, the whole idea of getting God, get, God starts getting going, you know, kind of, you build them from the ground up, you know, when you follow from the back. And that's, yeah. And, and so, like you say, then Jesus has to fit into everything God already is. And, and it just, it, it's a disaster. Yeah. Just to uh, put a little meat on the bones, I guess, uh, in regards to what you're saying about coming to creation through Christ, I believe in a, and imagine that there's a lot to that statement to Christ. The different ways that we become acquainted with Christ in an intimate way or as a cosmic Christ and just the various aspects of being human and, and being in community as well as being in community with our context with creation and, and revelation, you know, of the Gospels and, and how we might learn Christ and, and who He is. It's hard to explain, but I guess through time, the passage of time, what, 16 years now of being committed to, to trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus, life lived, and having that Christological framework to walk through repeatedly, and walking through that, that framework, and experiencing life through that framework and then having different questions, different experiences, different feedback through going through that Christological framework. You know, originally coming just as the narrative that most of us heard in terms of Jesus's humanitarian ministry and followed by his um, death and resurrection. So going through that framework and then having those questions, having that feedback each time I've passed through that framework in different settings in my life, in different communities at different times, the enhancement and the holistic embellishment of that experience of that Christological framework. And I think it's been within the last three years where I've had moments, parts of an afternoon, parts of a, a week, where I've looked around and had this experience and this sense of awareness and feeling of this is it. The love of God is here. It's, it's all around. In some way at this shoreline with these blue herons and those seagulls and the people way down you know half a mile down and the clouds above the good news is you know the kingdom of god has come the good news is here and to experience god's creation as family both animals and fellow man and the elements just experience god's creation as family that's not an experience i came to first i, I didn't experience creation that way first that's been um a redemption and a reorientation of the of the imagination and so i think there's a quite a bit of merit to your examination and thoughtfulness in regards to the chicken and the egg in terms of you know creation and christological experience 
You've said it well. The thing that I've been driving at, okay, if what you just said is true, that we have these real experiences of who God is in nature with other people, then why can it not be that we are primed for those experiences from the beginning of our acquisition of language, from our birth, that we are born into a world that is primed for revelation. And the only reason there is an obstruction of that unfolding of who God is for us is that we would, strangely enough, you can almost explain what we would do theologically in a bad sense. In other words, we would turn this whole thing, we would disembody it, we would make God distant. When I was writing of Helen Keller, I was writing about the God that we often picture is very much like Helen Keller's experience of the world, that in some way he cannot hear us, he cannot see us, he is encased in his own world, and to get at him we have to break through. We do not have a blind and deaf God, but that's often the way that we picture, so why do we picture it that way? I think because of an inherent sinful conception of God that gets taken up in traditional theological language, you know, God in his transcendence is without emotion, without change. The idea is God is more like an Aristotelian unmoved mover. I like just talking about ordinary, and ordinary is the wrong word. I mean, extraordinary reality that we have to see that we're enfolded by. This is the reason I really appreciated Helen Keller's depiction of her acquisition of language. You know, she kind of has an awareness at seven years old, and she had already, you know, before she had, I think she was 19 months old when she experienced her disease that, that blinded her and caused her to be deaf. And so because of that, she had a unique remembrance of her own language acquisition that she likens to enlivening of her soul. She likens it to a kind of revelation. The way I've always put this, and maybe it's a kind of inadequate way, I've always said, well, the, the world and language is certainly adequate for revealing God to us. Maybe we need to say it stronger than that. It's not only adequate to doing that, but of course that's what it's done in Christ, and we're presuming that even in a kind of retrospective way, that God has been revealing himself in this fashion throughout history. But what would obstruct it, then, is our turning the world inside out. A kind of Heideggerian illustration of this, I'm playing with a thought here, and I'm looking for your help, is that Heidegger talks about language and death as necessarily being tied together. I think he's hit upon a key biblical insight, but he's taken that insight and misapplied it and foreshortened it. I think that what we have in Christianity is indeed a key insight into the connection between language and death. And so what, unfortunately, we would do, we would take all of the cross and all of the death of Christ and imagine a system in which the violence of the cross is solving our problem with God or with God's anger. In other words, we, what we've done with Christianity is what people always do, that we make the economy of death primary. 
I don't think it is primary for God, nor need it be primary for us. And that's the revelation that we have in Christ, that there is an unfolding of all of reality in and through the givenness of the human situation, i.e. science, i.e. human love, i.e. our appreciation of nature, that is only obstructed because of the perversity or the, the nature of the human condition in which we would, you know, in a Hegelian sense, we would take absence and nothingness and make them primary. And I think that's just the human failure. That's not reality. You gain a lot of insights in your cave you've got going there. I know. That's what it reminds me of with the lighting. Yes, yes. Occasionally I see the shadows that are being cast. Uh, yeah. from apocalypse, the apocalypse now it's uh, captain kurtz <laughs> yeah. 21st version of plato's cave you get a, a virtual link to it but um is the idea that let's say the resurrection in regards to evil is less about god finding a way to overcome this overwhelming dark insidious power called evil and death that it's less about overcoming that and it's more about simply the the nature the loving uh, miraculous benevolent whimsical nature of of christ doing what what the creator does which is spring back to life because that is the the nature of god's loving reality to spring back to life and into life as opposed to being fixated with overcoming what's really more of a seemingly a human dilemma or a human foundation. Yeah, I, th I think you hit it. That, that what we would do is make death foundational. And of course, but to say it that way, but that's spe is specifically what Hegel does, that death and nothingness, negation, negativeness. And I think that there is the sense that language itself is always... Uh, Heidegger's quote, he begins with his quote, and what he doesn't notice in his quote about language and death, you know, that it's only, he says, well, humans... Uh, experience what it means to die because humans use language. Animals don't experience death because they're not language users. Okay, but what language also does, but what she does not notice and which is implicit in our experience of death is that language opens us up to an alternative. In other words, the reason that death is so tragic is because in some way we feel it's unnatural. In some way we recognize there is the possibility, not simply of being mortal, I think we are mortal, but we also recognize something beyond that possibility, immortality, which we don't have inherently. Why, do we, why is death death for us? Because in, in some way it's a foreshortening of the possibilities you know, even it's there in language. You don't have to be religious or, you know, that's just the, to understand mortality, you have to have its opposite, immortality. To understand what death is, you have to understand life and life as primary. The leap that I think we can make, in other words, he's just narrowing it down on this idea that death is the power. And I'm afraid that, that we can do the same thing we can imagine that it truly does obstruct us. But of course, what we have in Christ, you know, Paul says, I die daily, that we're continually given over to death. And he, he's describing this new orientation in death as a different orientation in language. 
that the world is opened up to him through this new orientation to the word. I assume it's not simply language, but it's the recognition that the word or language properly understood is not an entity unto itself, but it is the very person, the very expression of God that we have in Christ. And so that this opens up the world to us in a fashion. I keep going back to Helen Keller, but she she just talks about her world just seemed to grow exponentially. And she immediately linked this to a spiritual reality. I think that we need to go back and do the same thing, that our ability to speak does not simply tie us to death. It does not simply create our mortality to be kind of trivial. It's not just that language and death are tied together. Language and jokes, language and lying, language and sex, that apart from language, what is human copulation? It's just a kind of mechanical act. But you could go through and say that about everything, that language then is the, the way in which we have our being, which was close to what Heidegger was saying, but he wanted to close this off and imagine that death then is a delimitation. And what we recognize in language is not simply a limit, but in fact, that there is the opening of a kind of unlimited possibility that is open to us there in, in and through just all of the things that are part of what it means to be human. Back at the beginning of this, you talked about, so you said Heidegger begins with this quote, tying death to language. Is that like a, is that a, a famous quote? Or a, you, you know who Giorgio Agamben is? I feel like I've heard the name, but I don't know. He writes a book, Language and Death, and he opens with the quote from Heidegger. And Agamben writes these short little books, and they're kind of, you know, and language and death is, is the same thing. But I'm afraid that even Agamben, in his genius, is limiting uh, Agamben is an atheist, and maybe a frightening a atheist in his genius, because he, he just has such great insight. This is Agamben's take on, on Heidegger. He's beginning with that quote, and they have a whole seminar on language and death. I think it's a wonderful insight. Of course, what they don't do, but what I would add to it is the psychoanalytic insight. That's certainly Freudian and Lacanian to tie together language and death. That is that we die in the particular way that we do, not simply at the end of life, but throughout our lives because of our orientation psychoanalytically to language. And of course, this is the Pauline understanding about the law, that our orientation to the law, you know, just take language and replace it with law. It's the same insight. So that I read that whole book, Language and Death, what Heidegger is doing, as a kind of expanded illustration of Paul's note in Romans 7, that here is the orientation to the law, to language that kills. Here is the understanding that is undone for us in Christ. Here is the thing that is addressed when Paul talks about that we die daily. And of course, what he's talking about is death is made into something else. It's a different orientation. And the word, you know, Christ, but also I just think language. I think we need to expand that where we encounter Christ is in and through language is itself that we are oriented differently in language. And the way that we can begin to say that 
I think we could tie this all into our discussion of science, by the way. You know, what's happening in a scientific understanding is a peculiar development. This is, by the way, I think Thomas Torrance got this years ago. And that is that he's kind of using this Einsteinian understanding of the field theory, of the way in which the world comes together for us, is not in through in and through some sort of reductionism, but in and through, you know, in Kuhnian terms, a kind of paradigm or field, you know, in terms of particle theory or in terms of an atomistic understanding. Oh, that's only going to, to make sense, not in a Newtonian sense of reductionism, but in an Einsteinian understanding of field theory. That is, things hold together because of the whole. The parts don't lead you to an understanding of the whole, but the whole leads you to an understanding of the parts. Christ is not going to be understood on the basis of creation. Christ is not going to be understood on the basis of history. But history and creation seen through the holistic understanding given to us in Christ begins to cohere. And of course, that's the main thing about science. What is science working on? It's working on a theory that things should cohere, that things should make sense. You understand that's strange in the history of the world. Most people never bothered with thinking that it cohered. You know, even Aristotle, the, the Greeks, they think that the heavens are a different, you know, they're, they're ruled by the gods. But what we're saying in Christianity is the whole coheres. Not that we can achieve that coherence within ourselves, but we understand that our reason and understanding unfold then toward a further encounter with that coherence. This is just a different way of talking about language. Language is something that people do, and the origin of language is not apart from the person of God, but is, in fact, it coheres in who God is. Uh, Paul, I think you're really feeling 2021. That was quite a... <laughs> yeah, don't stop. Quite a keep roll. Going, Paul. <laughs> don't stop. Keep going. That was brilliant. I mean, it's a lot of... It's a lot to take in, and it's a lot to think about. Have you read at all um, Charles Taylor's The Language Animal? I have not read that one. I've read uh, Charles Taylor. So Yeah, that was, I guess it was two or three years ago, a couple of years ago. But um, again, I, yeah, it's, so it, that's, this stuff is just, you're just music to my ears, thinking about all this. <laughs> oh, good. And you're using words. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. I think it's, a, to me, Wittgenstein is always an easy entry into this. I don't think he's really saying anything complicated, other than language is embodied. And embodiment is linguistic. I think that sums up. And that we wear, that our soul is our body, and our body is our soul. And you don't even need to reduce that, that our spirituality is our, our physicality. Those are not necessarily two, two different things. And so it's language that gives us access to any of that. You know, this is kind of the amazing thing that, again, you know, Helen Keller tells us a little bit of what it must be like to be an infant that in the, the world she describes before she acquires language, she compare, and I, I don't, I, I wouldn't myself make this comparison. This is what she does. She compares it to a kind of animal-like existence. Objects and things don't have names. She describes herself as incapable of feeling empathy, tenderness. She has an infant sister, 
and she does have some dolls, and she doesn't explain exactly. You know, I, I'm never quite sure what she, how she conceives of her dolls. But she likes to play with the dolls even before she acquires language, like a little kid might. And she likes putting the doll in the crib. But one day she goes and she feels that her little sister is in the crib. And she violently, in her own description, dumps the kid out. And she says that, I think I would have killed my baby sister. My mother was there. She has no feeling for another person. And then, you know, when she acquires language, do you know the story of how she, what happens, the events leading up to her language acquisition? A broken doll? Yes. I've seen the movie. That's from your blog. Courage. How old is Courage now? 19 months. 19 months. So it's. You know, if you if you saw Courage, uh, you know, when he first came along, an infant does not have awareness of their own body. And it's not clear to them where their body ends and the mother's body begins. And then at some point, they become aware of their own body. And of course, the, the Freudian point, which I think is not just a Freudian point, that, you know, when does a child acquire language? Two things happen. Like with Helen Keller, her doll falls apart. There is a breaking of one world, a shattering of a world. And that's the way that Helen Keller, she describes it as this great delight that I felt the parts of my doll at my feet. And she says, I even was satisfied that Ann Sullivan was sweeping the doll away. And then the dramatic events that we're all familiar with, she goes out and, you know, she for the first time makes the connection. And then she comes back up on the porch and she feels guilty for the first time in her life. And of course, I think what we have there is that with the installation of language, that when we acquire language, this is precisely what Paul is talking about in the acquisition of conscience of the law, that the law then, it is the thing that for the first time invokes guilt, but also the capacity for empathy and sympathy, you know, for others, but also the capacity for self-condemnation. But the, the key thing there is that she talks about the, the breaking apart of the doll. And of course, in a Lacanian understanding, there's always this idea that we've in some way given up something to enter into language, that there's a kind of lost world. But what I would say, and I think what Helen Keller would say, oh, there was no loss, really. But the loss is a kind of retroactive understanding, that something is posited as lost only subsequent to having entered language. Now, this may sound like a trivial point, but this will have implications uh, everywhere. You know, this is a Hegelian point, by the way, and, and I think it's an insight of Hegel, that we retroactively posit a past that in fact never existed, both for ourselves in our inhuman desire, that there is a seeking to return to a world that in fact, you know, for that wholeness, this is what's described in a kind of infantile notion of, I, I think it's there, and this is the Eastern understanding of the Nirvana principle of becoming one, becoming one with the whole. It can be there in our depiction of Native Americans, you know, that, that we kind of tend to romanticize or to Africans, that there is a way of insulting people by romanticizing them and talking about a past 
that that is in some way lost and we say oh they've re- they've preserved this past it can be a you know it's a kind of colonial you find the same thing attached in co- uh, colonialism it's not just that the c- colonialists are racists they will also be romanticists at the same time that they'll talk about nativism or a return or you know the i think even the impetus to send black people back to africa oh, well, in some way they'll regain a lost world. I think that it is a description of the false nature of human desire, that human desire always sets us to achieving a return, to escaping what language necessarily does to us, and by implication what being in Christ necessarily does to us, and that is the feeling that the world is a multiplicity of things, that the world consists not you know, it's not a singularity, or, you know, even the impetus to think of God in terms of monotheism. In other words, I think this is partly what Trinitarianism is, that even God is multiple, that even God in his in the imminent Trinity is outgoing, outward moving, and that there is no enclosed notion of God. I think our tendency to picture God as without him, you know, the unmoved mover sort of God, is uh, the, of the same type as our tendency to picture the garden as the place to which we return, or our own desire that we want to achieve a oneness, we want to escape the body. In other words, it's all a lie, it's a deception, it's an undoing of the world in order to gain that which is not. Well, I guess the one thing that I, I was thinking, of, again, I was thinking I have a, um, a three-year-old grandson I, I'll tease my daughter. So what's his plan for tomorrow? Has he set his goals for the day? You know, I mean, <laughs> ignorance is bliss in that context. They just, they just live in a world that is, is wonderful, right? Everyone, the caregivers were just around trying to create a wonderful, comfortable, they have no idea, none whatsoever, you know? And, and like you say, that, that, that that's a naivete that we kind of want to return to that. It'd be kind of nice to be, but that's what language gives us, right? It's brought us into this world now where we, we become responsible. Dawning of the, of the light and recognizing our responsibility to others and to ourselves and to the whole. That's what it's all about is learning responsibility, in a, but not in a heavy-handed way, but in a communal way. We're all in this together. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating discussion on language. I have some real sort of pantheistic I, I don't know I, they're my friends first but I've engaged with my friends and in friendship and, and in life together and it's been really beneficial in a lot of ways and and then there's other times that are kind of bewildering the conversation gets to places that are challenging I guess um, are disorienting or brain numbing <laughs> but this talk about language definitely intersects with my conversation with my my friends here in the PNW in the same way that the term evil is evil, there's no such thing as evil except for the term evil among my friends. There's also an unspoken dismissal or condemnation of language itself, that if we could absolve, if we could dissolve language in its entirety, then difference would be gone. And then we could all, you know, at some one point or another, s- sort of seep into the, to the oneness of 
reality. I think this topic with Helen Keller and language is helpful. When you talk about an infant and a child, I suppose it might be instructive that Jesus said that the kingdom of, of God belongs to children and not infants. Because infants don't have empathy for when their parent needs to use the restroom. But my children, they're like, all right, they go and do their own thing. And and we now have space. So I think that there's certainly a sort of loving, beneficial awareness that can come with with language. So to have a wholeness, did you say Einsteinian field of? You know, he comes up with the, the notion that there should be a unified field theory. He doesn't ever get that. He never gets there. But he comes up with relativity, and the implication is that that there should be something that unifies quantum mechanics. I'm not very hip on this, but Tim probably is. Of you know, light is a particle, light is a wave, and so that Einstein thought that eventually there would become a unified th- field theory that would explain that. Was well, about to achieve enlightenment from your your instruction and <laughs> yeah the in other words that Einstein is positing a very Christian idea I think we almost have to agree with it it's not that it's there that we've achieved it but I think the goal is that what we are looking for in science is that things fit together in a unified understanding we're not there right now we don't know we we don't know even what light is. And to say that, we really don't know what material reality is. You know, this is kind of the strange thing that in a, in a Newtonian world, people would talk about matter as if, oh, we got the concrete world. Well, actually, one of the most mysterious things there is, is, is matter. We don't really don't know what material, we don't know what energy is in, in scientific terms. And so the concreteness of things in scientific terms linguistic terms. I mean, that's what science is. Science uh, is an understanding, a comprehension of the concrete world. The thing that escapes us most readily is that thing which is most concrete. That theory, in terms of the, the conversation with my, my friends and, and I guess their Eastern, Neo-Eastern ideas and everything, to have a wholeness that accounts for or allows for uh, an awareness of existence within a corporate body, you know, an individual or unique existence within a collective that is the whole. They would like to go back in that understanding. To be a, a, a battery in the matrix is not a bad end. That's the goal. Something, yeah, some, I guess something like that. What I was saying, though, is that there is a holistic understanding of oneness that I think that Christ upholds, you know, Christ in and through all things, that Christ upholds a unity that is a collective unity with unique participants within that unity. And for humans, maybe some other species that also like orcas definitely have language, but for humans, language provides an awareness of the participation in that corporate unity. So there is, I think, a wholeness that we can affirm, a certain type of oneness that we can affirm the oneness that that I I'm, I try to represent I try to share this world of unique you know unique individuals of all sorts human and otherwise participating in a collective reality through Christ I try to share that with my friends it's about this uh, dissolution this evaporation dissolving of uniqueness difference and in individuality so that there is a uniformed oneness I guess the the difference in illustrate and illustrations could be. I think for my friends, it's like taking all the paints 
that you have and, and putting them together in a medium on a paint canvas and just sort of washing them all together and losing all sense of uniqueness or individuality. Yeah. No, you're but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's a real conversation. Like, I, and I'm sure this is probably a broader conversation, but at least in Western Washington, engaging with people in conversation about God and Jesus and divinity and creation, I, I think that's my biggest thing I, I encounter is um, there's no such thing as evil. There's really no such thing as language. If we get rid of language and then we get rid of evil, we get rid of our problems. Basically, we'll all just one day kind of melt away into oneness. And that's the cosmic solution. Instead of, as Tim was mentioning, a oneness or a unity that evokes a sense of awareness and responsibility to to taking your responsibility for the part that you play in that oneness and that in that unity in that wholeness uh, yeah, yeah so that's a conversation that's very real and unfolding in my life so thanks thanks for bringing some of that content up in japan this was the reality that is always there and i think the destructiveness of it comes out in that there really is the the drive you know i think that what if you took heidegger's point linking language and death that would be a strong argument for science for escape from language and an escape through escaping language some way escaping death in an eastern understanding this plays itself out at least in japan in a, a highly oppressive society for the individual literally the psychoanalytic approach i i did all this with freudian theory in japan that where freud talks about the death instinct as destructive and he ties the death instinct tied to the nirvana principle nirvana of course that buddhist term he is kind of denigrating an eastern viewpoint but of course his his point is well no this isn't just eastern it's the the human condition but that mode of psychoanalysis privileging the death instinct quite literally is taken as the psychoanalytic goal uh, that when you go into therapy in the post-war period I, I remember there was uh, one therapist describes he said a young man came to me and he was having trouble and I was able to cure him because at the end of therapy he was able to be completely obedient to his father. I'm talking about somebody in their 20s, you know, an adult. And so the cure is to suppress individualism. I don't need to go into this, but you know this in Nishida theory and Zen Buddhism, the goal is a drive toward silence, to stop thinking, to quiet the mind, to in some way escape language. And escaping language is to escape what language does to you, that it's the differentiation of language. This is the recognition of Derrida. The drive to escape difference leads you to sameness. Sameness is an obliteration. It's highly destructive. I haven't read the book, but I want to read the book, Zen at War. But it is about the Kyoto school of philosophers, I think. These guys are right-wing and militaristic. This is the whole idea behind the various martial arts in the wielding of the sword. It's not that you cut someone's head off. It's that you make the perf perfect motions in the air and someone's head might, in fact, get in the way. In other words, the idea is that it's always this drive toward a kind of depersonalization. It's highly destructive. It's highly unethical. And it gives itself over to fascism in Japan. And I'm afraid that the infantile naivete of American evangelicalism 
in its drive to heaven and its relinquishing of earth is a manifestation of the same thing. I think that the storming of the Capitol building today, you notice they hung out a Jesus sign. They're doing this in the name of Jesus. This is American evangelicals, you know, uh, that has been behind this push. I don't know that all those individuals necessarily are there, but it is American evangelicalism that has kept Donald Trump in power. It's the churches and the Christians that we're all familiar with and their belief system that is empowering the destruction, I believe, of liberal democracy. But at the same time that it's this liberal democracy is imploding, I think what we're witnessing is the implosion of this form of Christianity. What do you call it? Evangelicalism? I think it's more than that. It's this American form of the religion. And so the problem behind it is that what Heidegger would do is what every Christian would do. In some way, the resolution is made so otherworldly, when in fact what we have is a reconnection to the world, an opening of the world to us, in a real, you know, as you described it, Tyler, or as we can describe it in every, that people are open to us. That's precisely what people are missing out on, is this beautiful opening of the presence of God to us in the neighbor, in creation, because we've made the religion all about, uh, we've made it violent, and we've embraced that violence as who God is. And part of that violence then, I think, is also embracing this notion of return. We kind of have an idea of going to heaven is like returning to Eden, and it's a, it's a false conception on the order of the Nirvana Principle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.